Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. <laughs> the transfer window is part of the Daily Record Podcast Network. Subscribe at iTunes or Audio Boom. Good day. The transfer window might be closed, but the transfer window podcast is still here and open for business. I'm Henry McRae, and while I might not have any star strikers to sell you. I'm always open to swaps to film a Panini sticker album. I'm joined by Transfer Window regulars Ian McGarry and Duncan Castles, who over the next hour or so will give us the inside word, their expert views and informed opinions on the big transfer talking points. We've looked at the winners and the losers, but now it's all over, the real work begins and who do we think has built a squad capable of challenging for this year's Premier League title? Jose Mourinho said this week that Manchester United saved a fortune getting their business done early because the initial price of $75 million for Romelu Lukaku would have been blown up to $150 million only a few weeks later. There's the bizarre situation where Kylian Mbappe managed to stop a fairy tale second honeymoon for Manchester United and their crown prince Cristiano Ronaldo. And what does the future hold for Slavin Bilic? Now West Ham's owners seem to have lost all faith in the manager. But before all that, we need to address the news about changes to next summer's transfer window. Ian, can you update us on what's going on? Well, I think somewhat um, ridiculously, in my opinion, Henry, um, Premier Clubs have today voted to close the transfer window before the rest of Europe closes theirs. And therefore, um, according uh, to the Premier League, that window in summer next year will close on August the 9th at 5pm, which means before the actual games kick off in uh, that campaign. Now, I have had so many conversations with players, managers over the last few weeks about the pros and cons of this, and I can't see anything but one huge disadvantage, and that is that Europe's elite clubs will be able to come in and bid, stroke, negotiate for the best players in the Premier League who will be sitting ducks because those players cannot be replaced uh, in the two to three weeks extra that Europe uh, big leagues, uh, and and here we're talking obviously France, Spain, Italy, Germany, can poach uh, the the best players in the Premier League. So you're putting videos position where um, Premier League clubs can say we're not selling because we can't replace. Yeah, okay, but as we've seen, players will um, obviously agitate to leave because they've got a chance to join a bigger club, bigger contract, etc., etc. Why, why, why would the Premier League shoot itself in the foot like this just because a few managers say, I'd like to have a settled squad. It's nice to know that this is just what we're going to have to work with because the game, this season hasn't started yet. It just but, makes no sense to me whatsoever. But Duncan, doesn't this put some of the power back into the club's hands where they say, well, look, I know Barcelona might want you, but we can't replace you now, so there's no deal. No, I don't think it, was, it takes power away from the clubs, as, as, as Ian's pointing out. It's, um, 
you, you can say as much as you like, we, we don't want you to leave. But that we know, even though we've seen this window that clubs have managed to hold on to some of the players who want to leave, you get problems because of that. And more often than not, a player will leave in that circumstance. And, you know, Arsene Wenger saying, I want a settled squad for the first, um, the first three weeks of the season. Well, let's say that next, uh, he was in the same situation as, as, he, as he's in this summer. Um, Alexis Sanchez wants to leave. And one of the suitors is Paris Saint-Germain or Real Madrid or Bayern Munich. Um, then he has three weeks of unsettled squad, regardless of whether he can't buy any players or not. He's still got three weeks of sitting, uh, waiting to see if he can manage to hold on to Alexis Sanchez for those three weeks and the player being unsettled regardless. And, and not only that, Duncan, um, let's just, you know, that same scenario. So let's just say Manchester City <clears throat> and Paris Saint-Germain are bidding for... Alexis Sanchez uh, and the, the transfer window closes in England three before everyone else, then PSG will wait until the window closes in England because the market then reduces and so yeah. Arsenal will not get the same price because there's no uh, auction for the player because yeah. Manchester City have been ruled out of the equation. So again, money goes out of England or player goes out of England, but there's no way of um, Manchester City competing with PSG then because the window's closed. The amount, of, the amount of money that's coming out of England, will that not force other clubs around Europe to get their business done early? Because that the, the money that's coming out of the Premier League is about to dry up far earlier. Okay, well, ask yourself this question, Henry. Um, I've got the potential of a major advantage um, against a market competitor, in this case, the big clubs in England, by having an extended window in which I can do business. Am I going to cut off my nose to spite my face by saying, yes, let's all do the same as England. That's a good idea. I'm, I'm, I'm certain that's not going to be the case. They're just going to say, can you imagine Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, PSG are now laughing their socks off at England because they've voted for this. It's turkeys for Christmas. That's what it is. So why do you think they've done it? I think they've done it because they, they believe... Um, mistakenly, in my opinion, that somehow it will give an advantage, it's not an advantage, it will give, it will take away the uncertainty of um, squads being able to be um, in some way uh, adjusted, strengthened, weakened, um, while our games are going on, i.e. from August the 10th um, into September the 1st. Uh, and therefore, it will make a, a more level playing field. And remember, Premier League is a group of 20 stakeholders. 20 stakeholders, which include clubs like Huddersfield Town, Newcastle United, Southampton, Bournemouth, Brighton, Hove Albion. Now, it has been said in the past that because you need 14 of those 20 votes to get any particular bit of business through, the tail can wag the dog, the dog being the top six. So, obviously, the tail in this case, i.e. the lesser, smaller clubs, are the ones who believe that they're at a disadvantage because their squads can still be weakened in those three weeks after the first three games. So I suspect that when we see the list, if we do see the list of clubs who voted in favour of this, it will not include Manchester United, Manchester City, uh, Arsenal, Liverpool, Tottenham. I could be wrong, but I would suspect that I, I won't be, and that we'll have 14 or maybe slightly more votes where they've said, uh, and it'll be the smaller clubs who are saying we want a, a, a more level playing field because we don't we don't want to do business in those three weeks. We would rather just have the squad we have. Therefore, we can't lose players to anyone. 
We've just had an example of Spain having a one-day advantage over the rest of Europe, um, yeah. which allowed them to have another, you know, allowed Barcelona to have an additional pop at, at Philippe Coutinho on the last day, albeit they didn't get the deal through this time. But if you talk to agents through that window, they were all saying the Spanish have got an advantage because they can wait and see what happens in England, Germany, Italy um, on August 31st. And then you get one more chance to look at the players who are left over who want to, to move clubs. And we are the only ones, and the Spanish are the only ones that are able to operate. What the Premier League is giving here is a 21-day advantage to all the other power, powerful clubs in Europe over themselves in the transfer market. And OK, the Premier League have got more money than anyone else, but that's a hell of an advantage to hand over to your, your direct rivals for the Champions League, which, as we know, Premier League clubs haven't done very well in the Champions League for the last few years. Okay, well, it's a big story. Um, we'll hear more about it in the uh, days to come, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it at length on the Transfer Window podcast. Okay, from next year's window to more pressing matters and news that Duncan's been spending a bit of time in Manchester this week. Duncan, apparently you met up with none other than Josie Mourinho. Can you tell us what he had to say? That's right. Um, it's uh, an interview we've had uh in the offing since um, after the Europa League final. We finally got a, a date to do it in the international break. Um, so I was over in Carrington on uh, Monday afternoon to meet Jose and um, interview him for, I think we spent about an hour chatting. And you can read that in the Sunday Times this weekend. Um, urge you to buy the paper. It was fascinating stuff. Um, a real in-depth discussion of what happened when he came to Manchester United, where they are now and where he expects them to go. Well, hopefully we'll uh, hear a bit more about that in, in the Sunday Times, obviously, and, and as the weeks go on in, the, in this podcast. Ian, what did you make of Josie's comments about the price inflation as the window went on? Uh, is that a big reason why United have not only got to the top of the league, but are seen as one of the best operators in this recent window? Well, they've improved, Henry, that's for sure, because if you remember that um, on the final days of last year's transfer window, they were still frantically trying to get deals done so um, Edward Woodward who um, has certainly improved his performance something which Josie Mourinho had uh, demanded after the disappointments um, of two windows and by that I mean last summer and then the January window so um, I think it's fair for Mourinho to say that Lukaku um, had the bottom on the last day um, the price would have been exponentially more than it actually was um, but in saying that it was a deal they they worked on quite quickly after um, the transfer of Griezmann from Atletico Madrid fell through and also Zlatan Ibrahimovic got injured. So um, obviously Wayne Rooney going the other way was also a factor. So it was made, it made easier, if you like, for Lukaku to come to Manchester United because Everton were getting Rooney in to go the other way. Also part of his wages paid as well, I understand, as part of that deal. So look, Manchester have done good business. I don't think they've done all the business that, that Josie would have wanted. But performances so far have justified the investments. Lukaku's scored goals, his relationship uh, and indeed partnership with Paul Pogba has been a key factor in that. And they look the team to beat at this moment in time. But we have to have the caveat that they have not played a particularly strong team yet. Uh, and even this weekend, that won't happen either. So I think we've got to be realistic about Manchester United um, and not get carried away. And I think that's the view of most people. Um, it'd be interesting to get a, a gist of Duncan's conversation with Jose uh, in this last week. And was he, Duncan, particularly confident or, or is he still 
being a little bit reticent with regards to their league championship, I should say, um, aspirations. Well, I, th- I think your analysis is fair. It's um, the start looks great on paper. Um, they scored a lot of goals. They haven't conceded any goals. Any manager is going to be happy with that. But they still haven't played a very strong opponent. And more importantly, they still haven't been in a situation where they've been behind in a game, which is a which is a, something the team struggled with last season. So you've got to you've got to wait till those challenges come to see how the squad re- responds. The squad's definitely improved. Uh, Mourinho's definitely happier with the the squad now. Um, but you've got to see how it responds in those circumstances. And I think I think if you're doing this overview of which clubs are in position to challenge for the title. The one thing you can say is that nobody's got a perfect squad. Nobody's got exactly what they wanted. I mean, you, you can look at Manchester City, who've spent more money in this window than any club in the Premier League ever. And um, depending on where you put Mbappe's transfer fee, and let's let's put it in this this summer for for PSG, because effectively it's done this summer and it's guaranteed, then the, it's the second highest. Uh, amount that a club spent on transfer fees ever, yet their squad has got obvious holes in it. I mean, we're looking, they, they go into this week, into Saturday um, lunchtime game, which I'm I'm going to be attending. I'm really looking forward to the Ma- Manchester City-Liverpool match. They go into that match with uh, Guardiola looking at, does he play three back, uh, three centre-backs, as he's done in some of the games at the start of the season? And if he does, does he start Elikim Mangala? Because Vincent Company injured himself in international national duty is unlikely to play in that match. So they've already got a problem in a key position entering a big game. Broken wing, as he's now known, Duncan. <laughs> two broken wings, isn't it? <laughs> let's, let, let's, let's not get too far into Man City because we haven't actually looked at Manchester United yet. But we, we were talking about uh, getting their business done early. We've spoken about uh, Lukaku. is obviously in on the goals and building a, a partnership with Pogba. Nemanja Matic, we've spoken about previously on this podcast, and, and everyone else and his and his dog has as well. It looks like uh, a great signing and a bad mistake by Chelsea. They did also sign, of course, Victor Lindelof, who is conspicuous by his absence. Played a bit in preseason, didn't look great. They haven't improved the defence in any way, and while they've you know got a decent defensive record, there are still some obvious holes in the squad in that area, the the pitch. Is that going to come back to haunt them? I think it could do, um, Henry. I think one of the things that everyone could see from last season was that Manchester United do not have a vocal commanding leader in central defence. I think Baye may well become that player, but he's not that player right now. He's certainly incredibly... Um, talented and has indeed improved under Jose Mourinho. But when you're looking at choosing between um, Phil Jones, uh, Chris Smalling, Marcus Rojo, etc., to partner him, um, and Lindelof, as you've mentioned, has not yet uh, stepped up to the plate, then there is a problem there for Manchester United, which, which might and will be exploited when they play better opposition, both in the Premier League and in the Champions League this season. So I'm surprised that they didn't recruit and uh, on this podcast uh, some uh, two weeks ago, maybe 10 days ago, when I was uh, in the lovely city of Seville, I did say that perhaps Manchester might sign a player under the radar. Now, the player I was referring to at the time was actually Johnny Evans, who was obviously the subject of bids from Manchester City and from Leicester City, um, because Evans is uh, an incredibly efficient, very balanced and 
a very effective defender and going back to Manchester United I think would have been very very attractive to him and I'm quite surprised that Evans has stayed at West Brom but credit to them that they've kept him it didn't take a new contract or anything like that he simply saw his future there because he knew he would play every week and at this time in his life and obviously he's done brilliantly well with uh, Northern Ireland as well who are almost qualified or certainly for the playoffs for um, Russia 2018 that's where I think they lack um, and I think that's where they might get into trouble and be exploited in the weeks coming up. Yeah, look, I think um, I think you're right about Eric Bailly. I think he's a future leader. Um, I'm not sure he's a vocal leader. I don't think I don't think that's his forte. But he can be a leader by example. With Phil Jones, they've kind of got Manchester United's version of Vincent Company, in that the guy can defend. He, I mean, Mourinho's talked about him having the attributes he likes in a central defender, particularly a central defender for the Premier League. But he, he's he's constantly playing on the verge of injury or injured. So I, mean, I think Jones has got an opportunity, if he can keep himself fit, to be the starting centre-back for this first period of the season while Lindelof is bedded in. And Lindelof is, is intended to be a different type of centre-back. I mean, the, the attributes that Mourinho particularly liked about him is his ability to take the ball from defence and create play. Um, but he's, he's been quite open at saying that he'll, he'll need a, a longer adaptation period. I think the real weakness in the defence is on the left side. That's that's the, the, the one obvious area that you would strengthen if you were able to find the right player at the right price, which they, they were unable to do in this window. Because they don't have a, a left-back you can play against all opponents and be confident that you don't have a weakness there. I mean, they're playing, continue to play Daily Blind there, and Daily Blind's a, a very nice, intelligent footballer, passes the ball well, but he's small and he's slow. And and he's he's just vulnerable to um, good opponents. So I mean that's so that, a that's an ongoing problem that you know we spoke about uh, ad nauseum uh, throughout the window. They needed a left back. They also wanted another attacking option. You know, yeah. he wanted four players, but that even that was a compromise because he really wanted five and he only got three. So yeah. you know, United have played well, no doubt. Results have probably been a little bit flattering. You know, they, they've got a lot of goals late in games. Do we think the Ferrari around United and the excitement is just a little bit too much too early? And we're looking at some big holes being exposed in that team uh, before January. The bottom line is, Henry, that every team, no matter who they are, experience a down time, a down period in any campaign. Um, in fact, in any game, you can expect a dominant team to have 10, 12, uh, 15, 20 minutes when they are under siege and concede chances if not goals and so look it will be certainly come Manchester United's time when they are the team who are under that kind of pressure for more than one week it'll be a month or six weeks etc etc it's how you respond to that and at the moment the window having slammed shut you have a 25 player squad who you have to work with Um, what Manchester United have in terms of advantages they've got a coach who has a long history of making players improve their game, of making players fight more than maybe they did before. I have said before on many different uh, occasions that uh, I've very rarely met a player who's played in a Jose Mourinho team who didn't say that he would run through a brick wall for that manager. So I guess what, what's up to Mourinho now is despite missing out on certain targets in, in the window, he now must coach and motivate players that he does have in his 25-man squad to ensure that when United do come up against better teams and do have negative results or bad performances, that they recover from that 
in order to maintain their championship credentials, which, as we said so many times right now, look pretty good. Look, M- Manchester United are definitely stronger now than when they went into the window. They're massively stronger than, than where they were when Jose Mourinho joined the club. They're not where they need to be to challenge for the Champions League, which is what Manchester United want to do. But I mean, one of the reasons the Premier League is so attractive at the moment is it's so well balanced. Any team anywhere in the league can beat the top contenders, and they, and they have been doing that. And you've got this season, you've got the top contenders all competing in Europe as well. So there's none of this imbalance we had last season where Chelsea and Liverpool had a huge advantage over the, the competition and only playing once a week, most weeks. So what that says is, you know, Manchester United can be stronger, and, and they are definitely stronger, but they've still got weaknesses. And maybe this title is going to come down to little details. Does a key player get, which team has a key player get injured at a certain time? Or has someone sent off, you know, Sergio Aguero has a habit of, of getting suspended for three matches at key points of seasons. Does that happen to him again or someone else? Or do you just get a, a bad game, bad refereeing decisions in a key game, which costs you three points and lose confidence? I, I don't think, I don't think there's an obvious winner. But what you can say, you can go through each of the clubs and say, did they have a good transfer window or not? Did they improve their chances of winning? Yeah, for sure. And obviously Manchester United, on the early examples we've seen, look like they will be one of them. Across the street in Manchester City, Duncan, sorry to have interrupted you back there, but um, you know you were, you were raising some issues about City. They've spent a lot of money and yet, like Manchester United, there are still some holes in the team and how Pep Guardiola would like it to look. Yeah, look, it's, that squad's still... It's, it's amazing how much money has been spent that the manager gets an absolute carte blanche to get whatever he wants in the window, i.e. tell us what you want, we will go and try and get that for you. They spend more than any Premier League club has ever spent and, and the squad's still terribly imbalanced. As I was saying, in centre-back, they've... They've got Vincent Company as a starting centre-back who we all know is not going to play all the games in the season. If they manage to get him to play to start half the games in the Premier League season, that'll be the first time for years for him. And once Company's out, they go to John Stones, great talent, but obviously with, with a lot of flaws to, to iron out in his game. Otamendi, who's not a top centre-back, physical, but he's not not top class by any stretch of the imagination, and, and a guy, Elikim Mangala, that they've been trying to get rid of for three years, who turned down moves to Crystal Palace and West Brom in the last window. They've only got one left back, albeit a very, very good left back. They've got basically one fit holding midfielder at the moment in Fernandinho, and then we look and see if Gundogan can get back to a level where he plays as he can and also can stay fit for a season, which he's not done for years. They've got a centre-forward that Guardiola doesn't trust in Cunaguero. They didn't manage to sign Sanchez as his replacement um, or, as a, or, or anyone as a backup. So they've basically got two, only two central strikers. And they've got um, a surface of, of attacking midfielders that he, he's been trying to shoehorn into the team. You could argue has been messing up the tactical balance of the side by having too many playmaking midfielders midfielders in the, the team and he's, he's regularly playing a centre a centre midfield of Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva and you know if you're 
most Premier League managers, and you know you're coming up against David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne, yeah, you're going to be very worried about through passes and creative passes against you. But you're going to think, physically, we're, we're going to dominate the midfield here. And we will get opportunities because of that. And we can play for set pieces. And we know their set piece defending is not very good. So they're, you know, they are, they're better. They certainly shouldn't struggle in the way they did last season. But are they obvious candidates for the title? For me, not at all. Duncan, I, I think you're correct in saying that um, City scores unbalanced. But I do believe that if they get the, the right set up of players, and by that I mean formation and game plan, and having seen them in the opening game at the Amex and, and beating Brighton Hove Albion 2-0, um, when clearly they were nowhere near uh, match sharp or match fit, I do think 1-11, to they, they do have a team who can challenge for the title. And what will test them is um, suspensions, injury, etc etc but you would have to say how can a club spend 215 million pounds on one transfer window and still end up with not enough backup in certain positions every man and his dog could see that Manchester City before last season needed fullbacks Guardiola for some reason failed to address that and uh, they won no trophies he's now addressed it by bringing in two um, very good fullbacks uh, for both left and right back I think I agree with you I think he's still short in central midfield in terms of uh, he has well, not the right fit players and also Yaya Turi is ageing and can't be relied upon to make the same um, impact that he has done in the last six or seven years at Manchester City. And up front, you're depending on Gabriel Jesus because you're right, he doesn't trust Aguero, but Aguero does score goals. Look, I, I think this, this particular season, um, we've seen two examples of fairly strange seasons in the Premier League in the last two years. One when Leicester City won because everyone else was effectively chaos and, and, and trailing and uh, and making mistakes. And then one, when a new manager comes into Chelsea and effectively imposes his own personality on a group of players that aren't his, but manages to get them to rise above everyone else. I think what we see this season, we've seen the first three games, and what we'll see in the next three, four months, is a Premier League where four, five, six teams will continue to compete with each other. I doubt very much we'll see a runaway leader I think we'll see teams very much cut each other's throats. I think we've seen it already um, in the case of Arsenal, um, losing two games in the first three. I think Liverpool have been sensational going forward, but very bad at the back, and that will be exposed, and possibly even this weekend against Manchester City. And also, we'll see what happens with Manchester City as we discussed, come up against a decent team. So, um, um, but, but just on, on City, you know, you two might not think that their squad is... Uh, fully formed and ready to challenge, but there's Pep Guardiola, and and if Pep Guardiola doesn't, then why not? Why doesn't he have a squad if he's got all that money, and he's and he had plenty of time to prepare for this, and he's you know he's probably a bit of a draw to play for himself. Why are they in a situation where at least you two are sitting there saying they're not ready to challenge? Because Graham Hunter, I said. A couple of times now on this podcast that he thinks is between them and United. Well, look. Let me just clarify when I say I don't. It's not. I don't think they're ready to challenge. I don't think they're clear favourites. That that's my position on them because of, because of the weaknesses they have. I met with a friend of Guardiola's last night, and he told and was asking about transfer business, and he said no, he's, he's content with the squad he's got, whether that's bravado or not. But that was the message. He was content with the squad he's got. Um, I think I think Saturday is a really interesting game because if the, it's obvious when you play Liverpool, you don't go and attack them 
full frontally because that's what they love. That's you know you see the results from last season where they were they had the best um, Premier League results amongst the top six by quite a margin, I think. Now, does Guardiola go into that game on Saturday and do what he almost always does, which is go on the front foot and give Liverpool the chance to exploit his defence? Or is he a bit more pragmatic about it and say, Liverpool, you come to us and we will use this you know, wealth of attacking talent we've got both from full-back and on the wings and behind the forward and in the forwards to, to, to pick you off when you when you take us and play them on the break. That's the sensible approach. For me, is Pep Guardiola ready to put that sensible approach into play? Because he hasn't done it in the Premier League yet. It's a good point <clears throat> in terms of, you know, how they will or how their challenge itself will sustain stroke and develop over the course of the season. The bottom line is Guardiola has to win one of the big trophies this year. Yeah. Um, the record spend, he's in his second year, he won nothing in his first year. Uh, it's quite clear the Abu Dhabi a regime who own Manchester City will not put up with another trophyless season uh, under the manager that they have coveted for five, six years, who was then um, delivered by Fernando Soriano and Chiqui Bagaristan, uh, as well as the investment they have made uh, under his stewardship. Um, I would say if I was Pep Guardiola, I'd be satisfied with um, the transfer business, but um, with the one major caveat, which is he didn't get Alexis Sanchez and Aguero continues to be a bit of a thorn with regards to the relationship with the manager himself. So, And as we know from Guardiola last season, they made an amazing start. I think they were undefeated in 10 games. And then things started to go a bit wrong for them. Guardiola went into a sulk. Uh, he was then asked what he wanted in the January window. And he told the um, administrators, I don't want anything because you gave me these players and I'll just have to cope with it. Uh, and unfortunately, Guardiola's personality um, and psychological makeup is one of dark and light. And if things go dark, then they go very dark. If things are light, then he's fine and the players are fine. But he does have that um, potential to affect his squad in uh, both positive and negative ways regarding his mood. So when things go wrong, um, you know, and that transfers to other parts of the football department and that doesn't work well. Um, it didn't work well at Barcelona because that's when he ended up resigning and walking out. It worked fine at, Bar at Bayern Munich because he obviously was incredibly successful. But in Manchester City, he's now got the biggest test yet of his career. Uh, I, I don't think he's got the perfect squad, but I think he's got a squad which will definitely compete for the title. But if they have a bad period, that will be what effectively defines their season. So let's just wait and see how we you know how that when it comes and how that is dealt with. Okay, well they're up against Liverpool this weekend. Duncan's go into the game. Liverpool certainly have. Uh, been making the headlines in the last couple of games. They look extremely uh, good going forward. They've added Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain into the mix. They've kept Coutinho. Is this the year that Liverpool finally get their hands on the Premier League title? I, I don't think so. I don't see it. They are. They're, they're stronger. Their attack's definitely better. Um, they're, they're frightening at times going forward. Um, and, they, and they're great to watch. But the defence is... <laughs> is there for anyone to take. They're, they're particularly poor in set pieces. There's a reason why they wanted to sign Virgil van Dijk and were prepared to spend so much money on it, but they haven't done that. Coutinho is a question mark. Um, they, they have to hope that Coutinho accepts 
um, the huge disappointment of not being allowed to leave with a lot of um, deception and miscommunication going on in the process and buckles down and plays as he is capable of playing and I, I don't see any guarantee of that and more importantly they have the additional problem of, of playing European football having to play two games a week all the, all the thing if you, you talk to people who've worked with Klopp and know him well they'll say all his teams start seasons at a sprint um, and that's partly because of the way he prepares them pre-season physically and, and he, you know, he's talking about this uh, during the pre-season, sort of taking pride in the fact that he'd been hammering his players and giving them triple sessions before friendly matches in Hong Kong and in high temperatures, and and that you know it's it's very old school and it does get the players extremely fit at the start of the season, but it comes at a cost. They they get injuries which they've already had, and as they go through the season, they they lose um, their fitness, and he has had a problem in both Januaries he's been at Liverpool, where the results have, have completely disappeared for him, barely won a game. And if they don't resolve that problem, it doesn't really matter how well they start. If they go into January and, and can't take any points in the Premier League, they won't win the title. So, yes, they've improved, but have they improved enough to compensate for the, the training methods and the additional demands on the team? I don't think so. What do you think is going to happen with Van Dijk, Ian? Well, Van Dijk, um, compared to his fellow um, rebels in the Premier League, Alexis Sanchez and Felipe Coutinho, has one great um, advantage in that he's not going to be cup-tied for European football in the January window. So I'd say of those three, um, he's got the best prospects of leaving and joining a club in January. Liverpool was his first choice. I spoke to a close friend of his and Van Dijk definitely believed that um, his deal to Liverpool was all agreed in terms of his personal terms for this transfer window that's just closed. Um, I think the takeover of Southampton Football Club, well, we say takeover, but the investment uh, in Southampton Football Club had a um, negative effect from Van Dijk's point of view with regards to they no longer wanted nor needed the money um, that they would get from selling him to Liverpool for around £55 million. Um, whether or not, of course, that backfires on him with regards to the players' performances, we have to wait and see, as he's not featured yet. Um, but I'd, I, I go back to the um, original point, and that is I think Van Dijk has a good chance of moving in January, whereas Sanchez and Coutinho, I would say, don't. Um, have they made enough signings in terms of um, being able to challenge right through the nine months? I, I doubt it very much, uh, even though that uh, they've had a great start um, I go back to the opening game of the season where they conceded three goals um, at Watford, uh, three poor goals. And again, this zonal marking system, uh, as much as people tell me that this club and that club won Champions League, won La Liga, etc. with zonal marking, my personal opinion is I've still never seen zone score a goal. Um, so why are you marking in the first place? Um, and I think if they'd gotten Virgil van Dijk, because he's such a dominant centre-half, um, and uh, indeed, Van Dijk, I've been told by one of his close friends, was absolutely certain to leave Southampton for Liverpool this summer transfer window. I think the change in ownership or the change in majority shareholder at Southampton Football Club had a very negative effect on Van Dijk's potential move because the club no longer had to cash in, they no longer needed the money. Um, and that being the case, Van Dijk now finds himself back in training with a group of players who he felt he wouldn't be playing alongside that's a difficult situation itself. Uh, reintegration into any squad when you've asked for a transfer is difficult. 
Um, and so I still think Van Dijk may be, of the three rebels, uh, and by that obviously I'm referring to Sanchez and Coutinho, has the best chance of leaving in January because he won't be cup-tied for European competition. So should Liverpool make it out of the Champions League uh, group stage and into the knockout phase, I think we could very well see, and I would expect to see, another bid for Van Dijk in January, which of course would then give them a little bit more augmentation to their squad and obviously to their defence for that crucial run-in that we've already said uh, is potentially the Achilles heel for Jurgen Klopp. Okay, so... Northwest of England, United City. Graham Hunter obviously thinks that the race is between them. I, personally, for what it's worth, I'd make, I think you would have to throw Liverpool in at the moment, especially if they do add Van Dijk. But would you agree that the, all the signs so far point towards the Northwest probably being the stronger area of the country as opposed to the three clubs that we'll speak about next in London? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think with Chelsea, as we've discussed, several times are, are nowhere near where Antonio Conte wants them to be as a squad. And there's, there's a huge division between Conte and the board, which will have to be dealt with um, one way or another. So, and, and you just have to look at the, look at the squad and, you know, they've lost the, the Premier League's best striker um, from, from their own mishandling of him and Diego Costa and replaced him with Alvaro Morata, who's a good striker, but you know Real Madrid were quite happy to let him go. He has to adapt to the Premier League. Um, they've handed Nemanja Matic to, to Manchester United and replaced him with Danny Drinkwater. As we discussed before, Danny Drinkwater's a good player, but on the same level as Nemanja Matic? No, don't think so. Then you can go to Arsenal and, and Arsenal... Uh, a terrible transfer window, really shocking transfer window. Only one signing of significance um, and one who, you know, in Lacazette for all his skills and finishing is not the complete striker, not not a good aerial striker. And Arsenal in recent seasons have moved more towards an aerial game. Um, their defence is, is a complete mess, desperately needed strengthening, but nothing done there, um, apart from uh, Kolasinac who's only you know, a partial solution, again, first season in the Premier League, cheap and needs to adapt. And then uh, the, the horrendous mess that they made of trying to sign Thomas Lamar on deadline day, putting in a club record bid when they didn't know that um, they didn't have a guarantee that Lamar would come to the club. So they, not only did they fail to get the player, but they embarrassed themselves publicly in that, that attempt to sign him. So Not only that, Duncan, um, I heard this morning Arsene Wenger say, oh, yeah, we could have had Kylian Mbappe this time last year, but uh, we didn't sign him. And I'm thinking, are you hearing yourself? How many times have we heard you say, oh, yeah, we could have had him, we could have had Pele, you know, if we'd only gone back in time and signed him as a 17-year-old. It's that ridiculous. Every time something happens, a national have a bad transfer window, for some reason, Wenger decides to say or admit that they could have had a player before his transfer value was you know, X million pounds because um, his scouting system or he himself is such a good scout. And, but then says, well, he wouldn't come or there was a, this reason or that reason why he didn't sign. I just think, well, why are you embarrassing yourself by saying stuff like that? I, I mean, remember the worst, one of the worst cases was Latan, of course, um, who said that they could have signed three different occasions uh, before he went to different, different clubs. And just think, you know I what? I think Cristiano Ronaldo's in that mix as well, isn't he? 
really is, yeah. And and and, and again, I even one that they did sign, Alexander Lacazette. I said on the podcast some weeks ago that uh, Wenger turned down the chance to sign him when he had a release clause of eighteen point nine million pounds uh, two seasons ago. So they could have had him for you know two seasons extra and not paid fifty two million pounds for him either. So like Arsenal Football Club right now, I think everyone is more or less in agreement as a shambles. They no longer compete for the biggest trophies. They seem to be happy to simply, with Wenger at, its, at their helm, they, uh, they make money off the pitch. In fact, they were the only Premier League club, I think I'm right in saying, to have a transfer window net profit in this last uh, window, which if you're a club who wants to compete for the Premier League title, that's probably not going to be but the right way to go about it. They're not in the Champions League. And, you know, no. if we're saying that that was an advantage for Chelsea and Liverpool last year, surely it's an advantage for no, Arsenal. But David, they're, no, they're in the Europa League, though, which is a big disadvantage, as we've seen yeah. for, for You don't every, have to play your best club. team in that, though. What, because Man United didn't play the best well, Man team? Man United did, but you don't have to. I mean, if he wants to concentrate on, on the Premier League and getting back into the Champions League, he could... Yeah, but yeah. his first team's, our first team's still not good enough to win the Premier League. That's the thing. So if he puts out his, his, you know, the academy team for the Europa League, it'll make no difference because the first team's still not good enough to win the Premier League. Henry, you don't have to put your, your best team in the, in the Europa League. You can decide to bin it and just play until um, winter and get knocked out. But if you're Arsene Wenger, do you want to do that in front of your fans, who, are, who the majority of, of whom probably want him out now? And also, you've still got to make the flights. You've still got to, you've still got to play the games. You've still got to get whatever percentage of your squad you take over to Europe on a Thursday night over there, possibly play games in Eastern Europe, fly back again and then play Sunday. And anyone, anyone in football you talk to will underline, who's played Europa League, will underline how much more difficult it is to play a Thursday-Sunday schedule than it is to play Tuesday or Wednesday-Saturday schedule. It's just a, a huge difference in the physical demands on the players and it's a major handicap. So can we expect them to do what United did then and maybe try and get access back to the Champions League through the Europa League? That's probably the more realistic, the most realistic avenue. But um, I don't know if that's that's what Wenger's planning to do. He needs to win something, doesn't he? He needs to win something of significance. And the Europa League is something of significance. That would be a substantial achievement for Arsenal if they could win it. Uh, what Ian was saying about Mbappe and, and Wenger's comments on Mbappe is correct. And Wenger did try and sign him last summer. And actually, um, Jason Burt has a really nice interview with um, Kylian Mbappe in the, um, in the Telegraph today in which uh, Mbappe talks about um, Wenger's approach and the possibility of going there. What Wenger hasn't said is that when they were having those negotiations with Mbappe last summer, Monaco stepped in and um, gave Mbappe a very substantial contract to ensure he stayed at the club. And that, I presume, is what, what stopped Arsene Wenger from going through with the deal, because he wasn't prepared to pay those wages to a teenage player. So, yes, he could have had him, but as Ian says, he didn't have the balls to go through with the deal. And therefore, you know, what's the point talking about it? You just... You just you make yourself look stupid. Wenger's already under siege, having lost two of the first three games. Not the position that a man who spent the entire last six months struggling with his conscience, uh, as well as his team selections regarding um, whether or not he should stay on as manager. He then signs a two-year contract to stay on. The fans, in majority, are unhappy with that. The board and the owner has been criticised for that. And so everything about Arsenal Football Club is now 
effectively up for questioning um, based on the, the results on the pitch. Whereas before, it, they got away with um, excuses like, yeah, but I'd rather watch lovely football than win trophies or, oh, well, I'd rather make a profit uh, and be in the Champions League than win a trophy. And, and this, that next thing. And now I think um, we've got to the point where the fans are not going to be fooled anymore by that kind of... Uh, propaganda and they will simply want to see a team win the Premier League again. It's been 13 years since Arsenal won the Premier League. Um, now that's obviously second only to Liverpool's absence from that particular rule of honour and I do think that Wenger, if what we've seen both in the transfer window and in the first three games of the season um, uh, sustains I think Wenger will come to grief sooner or later and by that I mean he will not be Arsenal manager by the end of the season. It's not an easy job to just bring in a Premier League winning manager. So let's face it, you know, Manchester United have, uh, have <laughs> proven that since Ferguson left and Arsenal faced the same sort of challenge in replacing uh, a, a manager with a, you know, a, a long legacy at the club. Is that preventing Arsenal from jumping straight in and, and, and making a change at the top? I think I think it's a different challenge for Arsenal because the, the the challenge for Manchester United was in replacing the most successful manager in the Premier League who just won the Premier League. Arsenal haven't won, as Ian pointed out, haven't won the Premier League for thirteen years. They've hardly won anything over the last decade. So actually, if Arsenal as a club were ready to bite that bullet and make the changes that were required, which they clearly haven't been ready to do that then actually it's probably quite fertile ground for a, for a new manager to come. And not only that, Duncan, I, I genuinely believe that Arsenal fans at Stroke, the media, the whole sort of football community, if you like, if they brought in a young manager with new ideas and a vision, I think that manager would be given time because Arsenal's a club which is loyal and will give time. Mm. So perhaps unlike the Manchester United model where when Ferguson left, they sacked Moyes and then Van Gaal, um, to eventually get the guy they wanted, Mourinho, I think Arsenal would probably give uh, a new manager a couple of years to bed in and get his ideas across. And I think that would actually placate the fans because at least they would be seen to be changing and evolving. Whereas right now, they're not standing still. They're going backwards. I'll give you a manager for Arsenal who's, who would be readily available, who's already got Premier League experience, who's showed himself to be modern. Marco Silva. Well, I thought you were going to say Sam Allardyce there. <laughs> Marco Silva um, could be an ideal appointment a man who's had success everywhere he's gone and success in difficult circumstances um, a very modern capable tactical manager a guy who Jose Mourinho describes as as the most talented manager to come out of Portugal since, since me yeah, since me yeah. <laughs> but, you know the, there's a guy who would who would be able to turn things around rapidly there and and you know, like Ian says, I think there would be an openness from the fans to give the guy time as long as they saw progress on the field. And you would get progress on the field because he, he, you saw the way he managed to change um, Hull's performances on the field with a far, far weaker squad um, last season uh, just by coming in and implementing modern football ideas and preparing for games properly. Um, and, and that's... That's the essence of what's wrong with Arsenal. Wenger is coaching like it was 20 years ago. OK, well, um, across the other part of North London, obviously, we have a similar young and uh, modern manager in uh, Pochettino. 
How do we view Tottenham's chances uh, after the window's closed? Very quiet window, Henry, for Tottenham. Um, not surprising because we know that Tottenham, as a club, historically, and especially under the stewardship of Daniel Levy, do not spend a lot of money, although um, I agree with Duncan's uh, analysis a couple of weeks ago that Davison Sanchez was an unusually high fee and and indeed finance structure um, of that particular transfer uh, by Tottenham's historical way of doing deals. Um, Serge Aurier, I think, is a sensational signing. He's a warrior. He plays uh, with everything, leaves everything out in the field, very uh, good technically with the ball, etc., etc. And look, I, I probably against the general um, consensus, I, I don't think that the Wembley thing is going to be a massive problem going forward. I think they're getting used to it now. I think Wembley will become not an issue for them in the weeks and months to come. If that's the case, just maybe, maybe. I'm not, I, I wouldn't be surprised should Tottenham be that sort of stalking horse type title challenger where no one sort of says they're going to win it, but they always just keep themselves in there, in there, in there. And then come the last eight weeks of the season... They're one of those clubs who are actually playing to win the title. Um, and and so I think Tottenham, despite not doing uh, a huge amount of business in the window, um, I think they've got the nucleus of a very good squad. Yeah, I mean, a very you, talented you, manager as well. You say that they've had a quiet window, but out of the clubs we are talking about, surely their squad was probably the one that needed the least. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, Henry, I totally agree with you on that. But at the same time, if you ask any manager if he wants to better the position from last season and that includes the team who win the Premier League then you have to upgrade your squad because you know everyone else is going to upgrade their squad now what you can say or you like that Tottenham were perhaps the club least in need of upgrades that's not the point the point is everyone else increases the quality in their squad so you've got to at least match that if not better if you're a serious title contender and what Spurs have been accused of over the years is of not being ambitious enough. They're a club who has no debt, even though they're building a new stadium. They're a club who has a very good fiscal process in terms of their wage structure, uh, the wage cap, which exists at Spurs, which basically doesn't exist at any other Premier League club. So they do have money to spend. And indeed, if Spurs of any club went to a financial institution, which, of course, many clubs do, and said, OK, here's our prospects for our income over the next two years. We would like to borrow this amount of money because we want to buy, let's just say, Gareth Bale back. Then those institutions would say, you know what? Sure, because you guys are run well. So you can actually have that money because we know we'll get it back with interest. Now, they could do that, but they don't. So I suppose you've got to go back to that sort of basic question again. Are sports ambitious enough to actually capitalise on what they've built in the last two to three years under Pochettino to win the league, or are they just hoping and a winging in prayer that they have got enough and that a couple of you know inclusions will help them and that they might just get there in the end? Unfortunately, I think from Pochettino's point of view, it's a little bit more the latter rather than the former. Duncan, are they the strongest team in London? I think they. I think you've got to distinguish between the team, the first eleven, and the squad. I think they had the strongest first eleven in terms of talent. Um, in the Premier League last season, but they, their squad is weak and they don't, they don't have enough options um, around that first team. And that's what Pochettino wanted and, and essentially didn't get. I think the signings they've made are interesting. Um, one of the, the things that I think has been a real weakness in Tottenham um, is that they don't have any winners. They don't have any guys in that squad 
um, bar Toby Alderweireld, who have won a significant national title or European trophy. Um, and they have a coach who's never won anything. So you, there, there is this, this aspect in football of getting a team over the line when it comes to you know, getting to finals and winning them or being cha challenging for the league and winning them. And Tottenham don't have that experience. And they were trying to add that experience. I mean, they, they, they did make a significant attempt to sign Dani Alves. Um, they were you know, beaten to that by Pep Guardiola, who, was then, who then lost them to Paris Saint-Germain with a, a, a huge financial offer. But they'd specifically targeted Dani Alves because they wanted... And then, Duncan, ironically, allowing Sergio Ri to move to Tottenham, the fact that Dani signed for... PSG. Yes, yeah, which I think, which, which I think, which I think tells you something because yeah. what what they've got is PSG's cast off, and yeah. and Aurier is a guy who has significant problems on and off the field, uh, disciplinary problems. So so that that's a gamble to take a player like that and give him high wages. So we'll, we'll see how Pochettino manages to manage him. There's a reason why PSG were happy to get rid of him. Davison Sanchez is a is a very physically talented. Uh, centre back, but one one thing that's interesting about him is when when Jose Mourinho was devising his plan to win the Europa League final against Ajax Amsterdam, Davinson Sanchez was one of the players he targeted because he felt Sanchez was a weakness with the ball at his feet. So he instructed his team to allow the rest of the Ajax defence to pass the ball to Sanchez to let him make the forward passes because the the expectation was they wouldn't be as good as, as if they were coming from other players. So he's, he's by no means a complete player, and they, they've, they've spent a lot of money on him. I think the Wembley factor is significant. I think they will agree with you. I think they'll get used to playing at Wembley. But White Hart Lane, for me as a football journalist, was always the most enjoyable stadium to watch yeah. football in London. It just has that real old-school atmosphere uh, being tight to the pitch, always noisy. It was worth points to the home team. Um, and you don't get that at Wembley. I mean, Wembley's for me, is one of the biggest wastes of, of money in, in football stadium history. It's a huge government expenditure or um, an FA expenditure in that stadium. And it's not an atmospheric place. It's um, soulless. Yeah, soulless. Partly because of the 7,000 or whatever corporate seats in the middle where... You know, people disappear early from the seats to go and get uh, their lunch and drinks at half time and come back late. Um, and it's very far from the pitch. It's uh, it's you free to go and watch games there, and the away fans are the ones making the most noise because because they, they're the hardcore coherent supporters. So it's a it's a difficult place to play. And England's results kind of show that. And well, Tottenham's results there so far have shown that. Whether they can change them or not, we'll, we'll see. But I I think it's. If they were still playing at White Hart Lane this season, I think they would they would be good contenders again. And I think there's one other element we haven't touched upon, which is the discontent within the squad, which Danny Rose made very public with that interview he gave to the Sun about a month ago now, and and it's that spreading. Um, you know, you saw Toby Alderweireld's agent talking this week about how his. Uh, his client deserved a better contract and other clubs were prepared to give him better contracts, Chelsea amongst them. And there's a significant number of players in that Tottenham squad who feel they're underpaid and they're discontent with that situation. And that's something that Daniel Levy has left um, Pochettino to manage this season. And yeah. you can only do that so long before it starts to impact performances on the pitch. I think though, Duncan, on that, 
particular um, uh, thread um, in the way that uh, those of us who are fans of the Beatles will always say we blame Yoko for the um, the breakup. I think we blame Neymar for the breakup of every team now over financial elements. Okay, well, you talk about teams playing in different stadiums. Obviously, we're at, we've got an issue with West Ham. The future maybe not looking so bright for Slavin Bilic following the window. How do we see that playing out? Yeah, look, um, Slavin Bilic is... If he's not quite dead man walking, he's 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 very close to being that. There's a big um, to and fro between Sporting and West Ham at the moment over the William the failed bid for William Carvalho with with um, <laughs> with Sporting. Just happy to publicly describe the owners of um, of uh, West Ham United as the Dildo Brothers, and uh, West Ham United threatening legal action over claims that they didn't actually make a bid for William Carvalho. West Ham did make a bid for Carvalho made a couple of bids for Carvalho, but they stepped away from it, specifically because David Sullivan lost confidence in Slavin Bilic as manager and was not prepared to make a club record bid for the player. So they were, they were about €5 million Euros away from Sporting's asking price for the player in, their, um, in the last of their bids, which with three weeks, roughly three weeks of the window left to go, and they didn't manage to bridge that gap. Despite the player making it absolutely clear that he wanted to come to the club and, and pushing Bielic to make a to get his owners to make a final bid to make that happen. Um, on the, the the final day of the window, um, Sporting were so desperate to sell the player because they needed the cash to come in that they, they got back in touch with West Ham and said, okay, that offer you made to us um, earlier in August, we're now prepared to accept that. West Ham's response was not to respond. This was on the morning of deadline day. was not to respond for most of the day. Then they eventually got back with an offer to take the player on loan for a loan fee of 2 million euros and then pay another 25 million um, euros in January to make the deal permanent. So they, they, they basically cut their price again. The interpretation of that from the manager of West Ham United is that his owners were not serious about buying the player that they want to save their money for the next manager coming in and that he faces a very hard task to turn the results around with a squad that he feels was insufficient for the purposes required for this season to retain his job at the club. Okay, well, we have spoken about a lot of things. The window might be closed, but there's still lots going on, obviously. Uh, we've got another story we need to fit in. Um, Duncan wrote this earlier in the week, uh, the story about Kylian Mbappe's move to PSG and how that uh, had a consequence for Cristiano Ronaldo and a potential move back to Old Trafford. Duncan, what's the story, or what went on? This is a, it's kind of one of these things that you get um, after the dust settles in a window where you, you have a chance to speak to the people who've been involved in trying to make deals happen and explore where, where certain things didn't take place or, or why certain things did take place. And obviously the big the two, two biggest transfers of this window were Neymar to Paris Saint-Germain and, and Kylian Mbappe to, to Paris Saint-Germain, I mean, the two biggest transfers of all time. Um, what... I discovered in conversations with people who were involved in the negotiations in those deals was that Mbappe had 
agreed completely to, to join Real Madrid. Uh, in fact, uh, people at Real Madrid were complaining that, that, that his father and, and, and Kylian had, had taken it to a level of agreement with the club, which is such that they should never have backed out. And that, that's maybe a, an indicator of the inexperience that um, his father has in this area. Um, but Madrid were sure they were going to sign the player, and the discussions then revolved around how he would be integrated in the team, where they went forward um, with him in the coming seasons. And what um, Madrid saw as a solution to was their problem with Cristiano Ronaldo, who, is, who as we know, um, wanted to leave Spain because of the tax case that had been brought against them. And as we know, Manchester United had explored the possibility of bringing him back. What I was told was that um, Manchester United did want to go forward with that, that they, but they were very concerned about becoming embroiled in a, in a long pursuit that didn't get resolved till the end of the window and one where they ended up with egg on their face, which they have done in several attempts for players of, of that level, including Cristiano before. So they wanted it clear that Cristiano would move before they, they pushed it down the line. Madrid said they were prepared to let him go. Then the fly in the ointment was Mbappe's father, and, and Mbappe saying, no, 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 we don't come to Real Madrid as the replacement for the World Player of the Year. That's too much pressure for an 18-year-old. Um, we want to come to Madrid, but we don't, we don't want to be seen as the new Cristiano Ronaldo because that is an issue for his career development. So Madrid had to change their strategy, and the next man um, to move out or to try and move out was Gareth Bale, who they offered to Manchester United. And as we know, Gareth Bale point blank refused to leave Real Madrid. So neither of those big candidates were able to leave. Paris Saint-Germain then came to Mbappe with a substantially improved financial offer with the guarantee that he would be a starter alongside uh, an amazing or an integral to amazing new attack of, of Neymar and Edison Cavani. And then if you see uh, um, Mbappe talking about that opportunity in, in the interview he gave with uh, Jason Burt that I mentioned earlier, and he said, I decided to join Paris Saint-Germain because this is the project that will help me develop while I win titles. So he made the calculation that Paris Saint-Germain was the place that was going to pay him the most money, give him the most opportunity to develop and get better as a footballer and win titles. And as a result, or that, that decision, and um, him reneging on the move to Madrid, Manchester United's attempt to sign Cristiano Ronaldo fell through. And Ronaldo, let's remember, appeared in a Spanish court about two weeks ago to defend himself in the tax case and said in the court, I want to return to England. That's how, that's how clear he is about his desire to go back to England. And if he goes back to England, the club he wants to go to is Manchester United. Okay. Let's wrap this up for one week um, with the usual exciting quickfire round. Uh, this week we will do or miss and we'll talk about the big deals and the big name signings that have come to the Premier League and whether they will be a success or a failure. I've got you in the hot seat first, Ian. Are we ready? I, I, I must, must say there's one name that's on this list that I'm a little bit worried about, um, just in pronunciation terms, and it's not Wayne Rooney, but we'll, we'll get to that. 
So, Ian, Romelu Lukaku. Hit. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Miss. Renato Sanchez. Hit. Gregors Krigoviak. Hit. Alvaro Morata. Hit. Alexandra Lacazette. Hit, but uh, only just because he's going to have a hard job ahead of him. Frame of the goal, Duncan. Frame of the goal. <laughs> Bernardo, Bernardo, in fact, Silva. Hit. Benjamin Mendy. Hit, as long as he behaves himself on the field. There's a lot of hits here. Wayne Rooney. Miss. Serge Aurier. I think that's a miss. And let's hope it's not a miss for the same reasons as Wayne Rooney's going to be a miss at Everton. (laughs) A little bit of controversy at the end there. Okay, gents, as always, fantastic to hear your thoughts and insights. This has been the Transfer Window Podcast. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Audio Boom. You can find us in a bunch of places that I can't remember where they are, but you'll find us if you really want to. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye.